0: Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus, increment 182. Now, though we record these messages a little ahead of time, and I have to tell you that today, because this will be, this we're recording on November 9th. This will come out for December First, Wednesday, December 1st. The reason I'm saying that is because I'm a little out of kilter with time here, but just before coming down to record this message today, I heard from my longtime friend Julie Price that her husband, Dr. Price, Dr. Richard Price, had departed from this life to be with the Lord. And it's been expected for some time, but nevertheless, It's always an event, and I called him Doc, Doc Price, was always a faithful believer. He was another one of our greats here for the whole stretch, and I called Julie the Johnstown caller because when we did radio, did a radio show every day, She was one who called in frequently, and it was always edifying to hear from her. And we still kid about it, even though it's not really kidding. She prayed for me to come down here. There's a story behind that. And, well, prayed for a teacher. And so I genuinely credit my coming down from New England to Western Pennsylvania to Julie's prayers and I always spoke with her I always wondered on telephone time I wonder if she has a husband and I wonder what he's like and her husband was Dick Price doc price as I like to call him and he was a great man a great leader a great husband a great father He no doubt has seen not only our Lord Jesus Christ, but his son Jim, who 22 years ago preceded him into glory, the heavenly glory. Dick was a man of great faith, and he was one of those who, when strong changes, the winds of change blew into our church, and our teachings began to expand on the horizon of God's grace, on the center of his grace in Christ crucified, and when the Holy Spirit led us into further lands, as it were, he always rolled with the changes, and he did not vacillate as others did, and I respect that and am eternally grateful for that, and I mean literally eternally grateful for that, and for veterans of the Word of God like Him. And so we'll certainly miss you, Doc, but we'll see you soon. And our prayer for comfort and consolation and strength for Julie and for the loved ones and the caretakers, caregivers for Him is that you'll experience the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ during this transition until you see him again. And as I say and have had to say almost maybe too many times lately, we'll see you soon. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. This word that we're proclaiming is something that your servant Dr. Price loved, he loved your word and many others do and so we pray that as the word goes forth today that it will do so with clarity, with power, with precision and that it may demonstrate its ability to save the soul and most of all that it may magnify your son so that Jesus can be magnified in our bodies as a result of receiving this message in Jesus name Amen and before we get started we want to remind you that until December 14th we will be collecting new toys under operation Salvation Army treasures for children the treasures for children campaign and you may bring new toys And drop them off at our facility here in New Kensington the number to call is 724 335 3550 and drop off those toys because it's going to be very I think very much a blessing for many of the children in this area who may not otherwise have the blessing of a gift on Christmas morning. Melchizedek, a prefiguration. I've used that word several times. In fact, I thought it wasn't a word and maybe I coined it, but then I found out coincidentally that it was a word within Days of using it and found it in two different places that I've been studying. So prefiguration, it is a word. Melchizedek, a prefiguration. And I think this word prefiguration is the best description we can have for Melchizedek. And it kind of splits the uprights between whether he was an historical personage or a divine figure or an angel. I think this one will show us that he is a prefiguration. And I'm going to hopefully home in on just what that means. So we're going to begin by looking at Hebrews chapter 7 and verses 1 through 3. And we have a translation of it that reads like this. Now about this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest to God Most High, who met with Abraham and blessed him as he returned from the defeat of the kings, to whom Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. First, the interpretation of his name is king of righteousness. Then, he is also king of Salem, which means king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, neither having beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God. That's where we're going to get our word prefiguration. Made like the Son of God. He, in effect, remains a priest perpetually. First, there is no genealogy in the scriptural record of Melchizedek either on his paternal or maternal side. Second, there is no indication of his having beginning of days as a priest or as the priest in Levitical order. This, I think, hints at the priests of the Levitical order. They had a beginning of their days as priests when they hit age 30. They had to be 30 years old. They had to be of a genealogical line of Aaron through Levi. And so he Melchizedek has no mention of the fact that he had a beginning of days as a priest, like the priests of the Levitical order who began their priestly ministry at age 30. Third, there's no record of him be, beginning his days as an archpriest, which in the Levitical custom began with the death of a successor. Fourth, there's no record of the end of his life as a priest. And from these negative indicators, as well as from the positive indicators, that he is not only a priest to God Most High, but also a king by a double denotation, a king of righteousness and a king of peace, that Abraham tithed the tenth of the spoils to him, and that Melchizedek blessed Abraham, it's pretty clear that Melchizedek is a great man by these negative and positive indicators. However, he is compared to Jesus under the law of comparison and contrast and comes out inferior to Jesus. It's a comparison under the rubric of, perhaps you remember this, auxasis. Once again, he still uses this rhetorical device of auxasis, also known as amplification, by which the greatness of Melchizedek is not denied. In fact, it's emphasized. But the greatness of Jesus is shown to be even greater by comparison and contrast. In fact, There's a two-layered auxasis going on here as we'll see as the whole chapter unfolds. Melchizedek is shown to be greater than Levi by an almost humorous argument that we'll be looking at later. And Levi, who represents the Levitical priesthood, Melchizedek is shown to be greater than Levi. Melchizedek is presented as a Prefiguration, therefore. Prefiguration is a word that I, once again, coincidentally, air quotes around it, saw very recently in a book called The Lamb of God. In fact, a couple days after thinking the word was something that may not have been a word, I saw it as a word in the book called The Lamb of God that was translated from the Russian recently, the Russian writer Sergius Bol- Bolgakov I've already quoted him a couple of times will a couple of times more. And he wrote this: He wrote of the,, quote, "fulfillment of the promise concerning the theocratic kingdom of the Messiah, given in the prophecies and prefigurations that's his word of the Old Testament. Prophecies and prefigurations of the Old Testament. Indeed, the testimony of Jesus in the Old Testament is given in these two main ways. Prophecies and prefigurations. Thanks to Hebrews and only Hebrews, we see Jesus as prefigured in Melchizedek. There's no other book in the Bible That shows him to be that, in the New Testament, that is. It's only in Hebrews that the Holy Spirit reveals Melchizedek to be such a prefiguration. Melchizedek is great, so great that the patriarch Abraham recognized his greatness, Abraham being a patriarch. But Jesus, the Son of God, via auxasis, this rhetorical device called auxasis, is also shown to be greater than the great Melchizedek. So there's a two layered exegesis, or two layered auxasis here. He is greater than the great Melchizedek, Jesus being the antitype that exceeds the type. By this means, the significance of the Son of God, Jesus, is properly amplified. Abraham is great. Melchizedek is still greater. Consider how great this man was, Hebrews 7 4, and therefore consider how much greater even is Jesus. That's the point. So, by this means, the Son of God, Jesus, is properly amplified. The Holy Spirit, through the teaching pastor, urges us to see how great Melchizedek is so that we can see how surpassingly great Jesus is. In fact, we have a list of things about this Melchizedek that are to be observed in order to amplify the importance of Jesus, the Son of God. So here's ten things, here are ten things about Melchizedek right off the bat. For this Melchizedek, one, we thir- first thing we note of him is his royalty as king of Salem and therefore king of peace, and his name means king of righteousness. Secondly, he's priest to God Most High, El Elyon in the Hebrew. Thirdly, he met with Abraham and blessed him as he returned from the defeat of the king's and we're going to learn that the blesser is greater than the e or the blessed. Fourthly, to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. And of course, in that sense, the lesser tithes to the greater. He is without father. He is without mother, sixthly. Seventhly, he is without genealogy, eighthly. He neither has beginning of days nor end of life. Ninthly, but made like the Son of God. Tenth, he remains a priest perpetually. So that's kind of giving ten indicators. And I think we can reduce these ten. Ten is the number of ordinal perfection or completion. We can reduce it to five, the number for divine grace. And the leading factor in the tabernacle measurements, the number five leading factor in the tabernacle measurements, as noted by E.W. Bullinger. So let's reduce the ten to five. First, the interpretation of his name is king of righteousness. Second, then he's also king of Salem, an actual town, an actual city-state at the time in Canaan. A Jebusite stronghold at the time. And incidentally, if you don't think that God honors freedom won through military victory in this evil age, then you've got to wonder why Melchizedek comes out to commend Abraham who won a military victory over terrorist kings by killing them and by rescuing hostages taken by them. That's just a side note. But in any case, again, first, about Melchizedek, the interpretation of his name is king of righteousness. Two, he's also king of Salem, an actual city, which means king of peace. Without father, thirdly, without mother, without genealogy. We'll put all that in one category. Without father, without mother, without genealogy. Fourthly, Having neither having beginning of days nor end of life. Fifthly, and this is the one most important in our indication today or our study today, but made like or made a prefiguration of, is even a proper translation, the Son of God. He, in effect, remains a priest perpetually. So the fifth of these five is most important. It answers the question for intelligence that we asked a couple times ago. Who is this Melchizedek? And we have four choices. A, a divine personage, the pre-incarnate Christ, question mark. B, an angel, that is a celestial messenger. C, a historic figure and real human being. D a prefiguration of the Son of God. So far, I think it's safe to answer with C and D. Melchizedek is a real historic figure and a human being, and more importantly, a prefiguration of the Son of God, especially in the figurative sense of remaining a priest perpetually. He is certainly a prefiguration of a divine personage, but not a divine personage per se. This is my conviction, and it's it's defensible. Though it is, and I want to say this emphatically, it is understandable to see him as such, as a divine personage. In other words, it's understandable if you conclude this about him. The PT doesn't mention that Melchizedek brought bread and wine with him to greet Abraham as the Genesis author does in Genesis 14:18. The omission of this detail does not infer that it's an unimportant detail or an oversight by the teaching pastor. It may be that it's not important to his argument and would have distracted him from the main point that he wished to make. I even suspect that he didn't want his readers to take this interpretation in a sacramental sense, to take it in a sacramental direction and then make it all about the Eucharist. And I find a lot of writers tend to kind of go that way. They take the highway of the sacraments and they want to make everything sacramental. And sometimes it just isn't. Sometimes water is just water. Bread is just bread and wine is just wine. Or the PT may have wanted his readers to augment the description of Melchizedek with that detail in order to let them see for themselves how he prefigures Jesus in the night of the Passover. So he may have wanted the readers to fill in that detail for themselves on the other hand and see that Melchizedek sort of resembles and prefigures Jesus in the night of the Passover when the King of Peace and of Righteousness and the Archpriest to the Most High God, Jesus, instituted the Eucharist during the Passover. My friend Terry Johnson, another of our veterans who is with the Lord now, more of us are with the Lord now than I think are still here sometimes, My friend Terry Johnson was of the strong conviction that Melchizedek was indeed a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And I wasn't unfamiliar with that assertion because I read J. Vernon McGee on Hebrews. And I think, if I recall correctly, he was pretty adamant about that himself. And so Terry believed him to be a divine figure, a a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. I highly respect Terry's position and I treasure his memory today. But as in our friendly dialectic then, I still hold Melchizedek to be a historic figure and more importantly, a prefiguration of Jesus, the Son of God, as the priest forever by God's own oath-fortified acclamation. Psalm 110.4 As I suggested before, the scales tip in that direction for me Because though Abraham tithed to Melchizedek and received a blessing from Melchizedek, the patriarch did not act in any way that indicated worship. That which is certainly due to a divine person. Melchizedek is, quote, made like. That's our key phrase for today. Made like the Son of God in the scripture by analogy. Made like does not denote identity. If Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of the divine man, and and by the way, God the Son was a divine man before he was incarnated in the person of Jesus. In Ezekiel one twenty six to twenty eight, Ezekiel saw the one with the form of quote a man above. Who also had the radiance of Yahweh. This is one of the most amazing and I, I hate to use that word because people are always saying that in an almost, well, an almost stupid fashion. You're amazing. You're amazing. And the person they're talking to actually is not amazing. God is amazing. Jesus is amazing. This revelation is amazing that Ezekiel saw, one with the form of a man above and with the radiance of Yahweh in Ezekiel 1, 26 to 28. And so the PT would probably have said this Melchizedek was the son of God and not made like the son of God if Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. William Lane, always helpful in his camp commentary, gives us an interpretive boost here. He cites Fred L. Horton's book called The Melchizedek Tradition, and he wrote this, quote, The term presupposes God's appointment of Melchizedek as an illustration of the higher priesthood that the writer finds in the Old Testament record. The formulation of verse 3c, where we're honed in now, appears to assume the subordination of Melchizedek to the eternal son. Let me say that again. It appears to assume the subordination of Melchizedek to the eternal son. And then I love what he says next. He possesses a prophetic but not saving significance. Melchizedek possesses a prophetic but not saving significance. It's so sweet to see that word saving significance, especially since. The main theme that's been driving me now since about 2010, in earnest 2013, has been the saving significance of Jesus Christ, the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice also that according to this Fred Horton, that he's right to say the term presupposes God's appointment of Melchizedek. This made like the son of God presupposes Melchizedek's subordination or subordination to Jesus Christ, the greater. So again, we have a double oxasis. Abraham was great as a patriarch. Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. So Melchizedek, consider how great he was. So Consider how great Jesus is to whom Melchizedek is subordinate. Jesus is amazing. Jesus is awesome. You're not. And I'm not. Although we could say that we were fearfully and awesomely made, so maybe we are awesome and maybe we are amazing by grace alone. So, the last declarative sentence by Lane, to me, was very striking. Melchizedek possesses a prophetic but not saving significance. I would say this a little differently, though. I always have a dialectic relationship with all the researchers and writers I read. So I would say it a little differently than Lane, though I wouldn't argue that Melchizedek has a prophetic significance. I would say that Melchizedek possesses a prefigurative significance. And that is, of course, prophetic. As the animal sacrifices, and let me take a new tack here, so I hope you'll be attentive. As the animal sacrifices prescribed through Moses for the Levitical priests and arch priests, especially as sin offerings for the sins of Israel, as they were prefigurations of Jesus' self-sacrifice for the sins of the world, so Melchizedek was a prefiguration of the priest, who is also the once and for all and forever sacrifice for all sins of all humanity for all time. So you see, the animals in sacrifice, especially the lambs, like the Passover lamb, the animals offered in sacrifice weren't a prophetic necessarily, but more of a prefigurative or prefiguration of Jesus. They weren't so much a prophecy of Jesus. Isaiah 53.7 is a prophecy of Jesus as the Lamb of God. That's a prophecy. But the animals offered in sacrifice were prefigurations of him. And so in the same way Melchizedek is a prefiguration of the priest who is also the once and for all and forever sacrifice for all the sins of all humanity for all of time. It is apparent that this Melchizedek has no saving significance. In fact, in his meeting with Abraham, he merely commemorates the saving act of God who delivered the terrorist kings into Abraham's hand and orchestrated the rescue of the hostages. So Melchizedek commemorated the saving act of God, but himself had no saving significance. Jesus actually commemorated his own saving act with bread and wine, unfermented wine and unleavened bread in the first Eucharist. But he was also the one with that saving significance and the salvation that he commemorated before even entering into the passion was his own divine act, the divine act of salvation enacted through Jesus Christ. And so again, Melchizedek has no saving significance because in his meeting with Abraham, he merely commemorated the saving act of God who delivered the terrorist kings into Abraham's hand and orchestrated the rescue of the hostages. Jesus By contrast with Melchizedek, who prefigures him, not only possesses saving significance, he possesses universally saving significance. And Lane himself, incidentally, used the term prefigure in connection with Melchizedek. Writing So maybe subconsciously I saw that and used the term prefiguration and then found out later prefiguration was a word. Melchizedek's sudden appearance, I'm quoting Lane again, Melchizedek's sudden appearance and equally sudden disappearance from recorded history evoked the notion of eternity, which was only prefigured in Melchizedek but was realized in Christ. So we've seen already that Jesus is greater than angels. The angels have a limited saving significance because they're able to come to the aid of those who are the heirs of salvation, the salvation enacted by God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is also greater than Moses. Moses has a limited saving significance Because he led the people of Israel in the exodus out of Egypt. Jesus, however, has unlimited saving significance. And by the exodus that he accomplished at Jerusalem, Luke 9.31, he leads all of humanity and all of creation to an endless liberation. Joshua had a limited saving significance in that he led the people of Israel who survived the desert crossing into the land of promise. But even the Hebrew writer said Joshua did not give the people their final rest. Jesus—that's Hebrews four eight. Jesus possesses unlimited saving significance because through his victory over death, he gives all of creation rest in an eternal Sabbath. The priests and archpriests of the Levitical order had a limited saving significance. We could say. For the offering they presented assured a limited outward purification. Jesus has unlimited saving significance because by his blood all are ransomed and redeemed and the inner man, not just the outer man, is purged from dead works to serve the living God. The sacrifices offered under the law, the Torah, had a limited saving effect and by that I mean They assured Israel freedom from disaster a year at a time, as it were. The once and for all sacrifice of Jesus possesses unlimited, even universal significance, saving significance. For by his one sacrifice, he put away sin itself. And in his resurrection, God, through Jesus Christ, vanquished death Itself, and destroyed the one who had power to leverage death for his own advantage over those who fear death. Hebrews 2.14 and 15. Now, there's been a lot of mystical speculation about Melchizedek from writings such as those found in the desert community of Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls they're known as. The PT avoids all speculation it makes a clear and cogent scriptural correlation, one that's evidently inspired by the same Holy Spirit who get, whom he urges his readers to hear and to heed, Hebrews 3.7 and 4.7. Melchizedek's greatness is an undisputed truth, therefore. The writer makes this very clear. But he does this, he makes it clear that Melchizedek is great, only to show the surpassing greatness of the Son of God whom Melchizedek was made to resemble by a, pure, by a prefiguration, a prefiguration, prefiguration. Hebrews 7.4 Observe how great this one is, Who? Melchizedek. Observe how great he is, to whom Abraham the patriarch apportioned a tenth of the spoils. Spoils? Plunder. Plunder from whom? From the terrorist kings who took hostages of the whole cavalry of Sodom and of people in Sodom and Gomorrah, including Lot, Abraham's brother's son, and his family. And so here's the auxasis, as This is how it works. Abraham was great in that he was a patriarch of Israel. The one who received the promises. Melchizedek must have been greater because Abraham tithed to him. But Jesus is greater even than Melchizedek because this Melchizedek only typified the Son of God or was made like the Son of God while Jesus is the Son of God. The receipt of a tithe did not make Melchizedek God. For in the very next verse, Hebrews 7, 5, it says that the sons of Levi collect tithes from the people of Israel, according to a commandment in the Torah. So you'd tithe, you'd give your tithe to a Levite didn't mean the Levite was God, so giving a tithe to Melchizedek didn't mean he was divine. Prefiguration, therefore, is a proper word that describes Melchizedek as he appears a first and a second time in Scripture. The Scriptures testify of Jesus. They do so by prophecy and prefiguration. This is a prominent theme of bibliology. The prophets speak of Messiah and the sufferings which led to his glory. The scripture also presents a host of prefigurations of Jesus. The greatest of these being the animal sacrifices offered under the Levitical regulations. And the most important of these being the sacrificial lambs. It comes from both the prominent prophecy in Deuteronomy, Isaiah, or make that Deutero-Isaiah. The prophecy of the Lamb of God comes from the prominent prophecy in Deutero-Isaiah, namely Isaiah 53.7, as well as prefigurations in places like Genesis 22.7 and 8 and Exodus 12.21. So there was the Passover lamb called the Paschal lamb. Second Chronicles 30.15 Ezra 6.20 That lamb was to be slaughtered and lambs then were to be offered in the morning and the evening, daily. It's a perpetual sacrifice, a burnt offering. Exodus 29.39-41 Lambs are prescribed to be offered for various occasions throughout the books of Leviticus and Numbers. The central figure in Revelation, the central figure in John's apocalypse called the Revelation is, quote, one like a slaughtered lamb, Revelation 5, 6. And the lamb is mentioned 28 times in the apocalypse to accentuate and highlight the crucial importance of the prefiguration fulfilled in the reality that is Jesus. In Hebrews, Christ is the Lamb of God in the central passage that says Christ offered himself without spot to God. The blemishless male lamb of a year old is what's being referred to here. Jesus is the antitype of that prefiguration. And so he was prefigured by the unblemished lamb that is to be offered on the occasion of the first Passover, Exodus 12, 5, and every Passover thereafter. Paul is explicit about this prefiguration being fulfilled in Christ Jesus and in usual Pauline direct fashion in 1 Corinthians 5:7, the apostle said, "For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed." Moreover, that Christ is said by Paul to reign until all his enemies are made a footrest for his feet in 1 Corinthians 15:27 means that the lamb of God is the reigning king, just like in Revelation. That he is the Lamb of God, advertises the law of the cross. This is probably the most important thing I have to say today on this subject. That he is the Lamb of God, advertises the law of the cross. For by the just and mysterious law of the cross, God chooses not to do away with the evils of the human race by force, as through a lion but by transforming those evils into the supreme good through his lamb. When John, no doubt, expects to see a fierce and fearful figure when he hears that the lion of the tribe of Judah, Revelation 5.5, has entered center stage in his heavenly vision. He's no doubt astonished to see instead a lamb standing there that appeared to have been slaughtered. Slaughtered from the foundation of the world, in fact. Revelation 5, 6, Revelation 13, 8. And not only that, but this lamb receives universal worship. Let me say that again. This lamb receives universal worship. For what? For his saving significance. Well if it's universal worship. For what kind of saving significance. If not. Universal. For as John goes on. In his vision report. He writes this. Revelation 5. 6b. Through 13. Listen carefully to it. As we move toward a close. Of increment. 182. Revelation 5, 6b through 13. He has seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into and throughout all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated upon the throne. And when he received the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 presbyters fell down before the Lamb, each one having a lyre and a bowl of golden incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Prayers like, let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a, an insert. Verse 9 goes on to say, and they sang a new song. The lyrics go like this. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slaughtered, and you bought for God by your blood people from every tribe and language and people group and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests, and they will reign on the earth. And then I saw and I heard the voice of many angels in a circle around the throne and the living beings and the presbyters, their number was ten thousands times ten thousands and thousands of thousands. That's an innumerable company of angels. And they all shouted with a loud voice. The lamb who was slaughtered is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength, and honor, and blessing. And I heard all of creation, that which is in heaven and on the earth. Remember, God's will sum up everything in heaven and earth in Christ. And under the earth, and on the sea, and every being that is in them, each, that's each and every inhabitant and being in the heavens and on earth and the sea. And they said this, blessing and honor and glory and sovereignty to the enthroned one and to the lamb for the ages that consist of endless ages. Amen. So in Melchizedek, we have a prefiguration of Jesus as priest. In the unblemished lamb, we have a prefiguration of the offering that the priest offers. In Jesus, we have the priest prefigured in Melchizedek and the lamb prefigured in all the sacrifices offered under the Levitical code. We have in Jesus the offerer and the offering. The priest forever, and the offering that is efficacious for all and forever. This is the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universally redemptive, reconciling, rectifying impact of the cross of Christ. In Hebrews, The efficacy of Jesus' self offering is accentuated by the rhetorical device of oxasis. That means that there was something wonderful about the blood of bulls and goats, inasmuch as they accomplished a purification of the flesh, an outward purification. The blood of bulls and goats is said not to be ineffective, but to be effective for the outward ritual purification. However, but the blood of Christ is said to be efficacious for the decisive purging of the conscience in order to be free. In order for the one with the purified conscience to be free to serve the living God. There is no service of the living God. Without the decisive purgation of the conscience. There is no decisive purgation of the conscience. Without the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of a lamb without spot. So in closing I want to see you this, let you see this. In Hebrews 9.13 and 14. It's an afortiori you can call it. But it's also an axasis. Because the blood of he goats and the ashes of a young cow and the bulls actually did serve to purify the pollutions of people, ritually. So let's read it, and I'll close with Hebrews 9, 13 to 14, and then say amen. For if the blood of he goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkled on polluted people, served to sanctify for the purification of the body, and it did, then how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, that's the lamb reference, purify our conscience from sinful things we've done so that we can serve the living God. Amen.